Welcome, guys, back to the Grateful Living Podcast. Today, I'm thankful to have Ariana Alejandro Gibson with me. Ariana is the founder and CEO of Stigma, an app and website looking to create safe spaces for people to talk about their mental health with people who share their lived experiences. They do this through video storytelling and being able to ask for and offer messages of hope. Ariana, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be talking to you. Of course. Uh, thankful to have you on. So, you know, for people that don't know you as well, can you take us back to the beginning, you know, where you grew up, your family situ- situation, uh, what type of kid you were, things like that? Yeah. So um, I was born in Costa Rica in a town called Escazú um, to a father who would be diagnosed about a year later with schizophrenia. Um, my parents separated and my mom moved to the U.S. and moved us to um, a, a town called Prairie Village that isn't as small as it sounds um, in Kansas City. And I mostly grew up in the Midwest, but um, would go every couple of years to visit my dad and family there in Costa Rica. So my dad and his side of the family all lived there and we would go and stay for a few weeks. And I always sort of um, credit my passion for travel with being able to be exposed to multiple cultures um, from a very young age. Um, I also, you know, as, as we get into the conversation about mental health and schizophrenia and things like that, and in some ways, um, I think every young person that doesn't have both parents around probably craves that on some level. Um, but there were moments and there are times when I've been an adult where I've reflected and thought that some of the harder phases of navigating severe mental illness for him and for the family, um, you know, being exposed to that as a very young child would have had uh, certainly had an impact. And I think I mostly got to have these contained moments, um, which I would have wanted more of if I could change it. Um, but the contained moments where I was able to really spend some joyous times exploring the country where I was born and, and, you know, making adventures out of it and not having it be sort of every day, which, which was kind of nice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you talked about it a little bit, but, you know, especially given our focus, I'm curious, uh, as you look at your life in hindsight, um, you know, your dad dealing with schizophrenia, you know, how did that affect you? you know, maybe as a child and um, into your young adult life? I think if you ask me as a young person, I would say in a bad way. Um, And that's because there's the component, like I said, just of um, sort of parental presence and not having a a father figure around and and missing that when there were father-daughter dinners and things where um, I was not ever going to have someone to go with me for those things. Um, Or it would be an uncle or my grandpa would fly in town. Um, So I think that there's a component of just that that missing him um, component. And then knowing that if I ever talked about him, people were afraid. Um, and they wouldn't say that they were afraid, um, but you could see in people's eyes the way that, that they look at you um, when you say something like that. And I've I've often said, especially since I've started Stigma and, and sort of talk more about the problem, that I'm a firm believer that people make their opinions in this life based on the personal lived experience that they have and the stories that they consume. And there is a fabulous author named Chimamanda Adichie who has a really famous TED talk that's called The Danger of a Single Story. And I point to that a lot because what she calls out is that the way a story is told by whom it is told and the number of times it is told really influences, um, there's a lot of power in that and a lot of power to influence the way people think about things. And so I often point out that if you wanted to understand schizophrenia, um, when I, I was born in the eighties. And so at that time or in the nineties, if, if you wanted to hear about schizophrenia or if it came across your path, no one really probably sought it out if they didn't have to, but if it came across your path, it was in one of two ways. It was a character on law and order or a murderer on the evening news. 
And that was really it. And so when you hear people or when you um, think about people having this reaction, when they hear the word schizophrenia, that's like, oh, and th- what they're doing is drawing an association, which is just totally human nature. But it all of that very much served as an inspiration for the company that I've built today. But as a young person, um, it was really painful. It was painful to have a thing that I couldn't control, that um, I knew I was being judged for, that sometimes I was quite um, explicitly and in, in, like, verbally um, sort of judged for something that I couldn't control and also something that caused me pain because I didn't want my dad to be sick and he didn't want to be sick and he didn't ask for it. And his family that loves and supports him in Costa Rica didn't want it either. And so it's this thing that causes a lot of pain that people make you feel bad for. And it was a feeling that um, I definitely spent some time trying to escape. Um, I always wanted to help people when I was younger. So I was certain I was going to be a pediatrician and I went to Boston College and I started out pre-med very quickly learned that I was not good enough at it. And I also didn't love it. Um, What I did love though, was writing and storytelling and photography. And um, sorry, I'm in Chicago. So sirens are passing by. I hope they're not too loud. Um, But uh, yeah, so I um, realized that that storytelling thing was something I really loved. And um, I just decided to switch like out of nowhere, went from being a biology major pre-med student to Um, studying film. And my senior thesis was a documentary where I interviewed uh, a family that I knew in Kansas City whose 19-year-old son had been diagnosed with schizophrenia. And I actually interviewed him, his older sister, his older brother, and both of his parents. Because what I knew from personal experience was that serious mental illness does not just affect the person who is navigating it. It affects all of the people who love that person and who start to see signs and are wondering what's going on with this person they love and maybe having to encourage that person um, to seek some kind of treatment or support. And so I I coupled that, um, those interviews with an interview uh, with a doctor from the National Institute of Mental Health um, to, who was a lead researcher on schizophrenia to kind of help people understand. And what's kind of fascinating is I did that when I was 21 and I, here I am all of these years later doing it, you know, a lot at volume. Um, And so it's really this idea of, of contributing stories, but you know, the, the question I know was about how it affected me then and now, but I can look at it now and say, because it was adversity that I went through and because it built in me a, a very, very deep sense of compassion for people who are navigating something that other people don't understand, I wouldn't be where I am today if that weren't the case. And I really love my dad. So, um, you know, I, I have to say that on the, on the whole, I'm grateful for the experience. Yeah. And maybe you answered this, but just like pushing a little bit more, but like you know, say there is someone out there that's listening to this, that's growing up with a parent with schizophrenia. Is there anything that you would have done different or is there any perspective um, you wish you had at a certain age? Um, I don't know if I would have done something different, like nothing comes to mind immediately, but something I would um, say to them is something that I learned from interviewing people. Um, And one woman specifically, a woman named Jenny, I remember was um, a trauma therapist, and she was one of the first people to really articulate well, this idea that um, people's behavior doesn't have anything to do with you. And so in, you know, psychology, they'll talk about presenting behavior. So if someone feels triggered by, um, you know, someone living maybe with complex PTSD or PTSD um, feels triggered by something that you don't understand because you it wouldn't be a trigger for you, but it was for them. And suddenly they're abrasive or they leave a dinner party or there's some behavior that just seems hard to understand. I think when it comes to mental health in general, when it comes to human beings, um, you have to think about the fact that 
the way someone is behaving is almost all of the time, not about you. It's actually about them and what's going on inside them. And I think that sometimes human beings are prone to um, let the behavior of others be a a reflection of them or they internalize it. And I think I did a lot of that when I was younger. Um, There are things you cannot explain when it comes to um, some of the behaviors I saw and some of the maybe things that were said that were not intentionally meant to be mean to me, um, but that hurt a lot. And so as a young person, you know, loved ones and his sisters and my family would say, don't be mad at your father. Like he, you know, he can't help it. And that's not what he means. But when you're little, you just have these like sort of basic desires of, but I want the dad that I saw in the movie or the show or whatever it was. And so you're comparing against something that it could never be. Um, But you're also sometimes using it as um, a sort of a reflection of your self-worth, which is sad to think about because it's not real. Um, But I think that for anyone who's navigating having a parent whose behavior is hard to understand, um, what you need to know is it's not about you. And also that like, love is such a powerful antidote to pain that showing that person love, even when things are hard, showing someone love is never going to bring out anything but good things. And so I think that is a hard skill to learn um, in a moment where you're feeling pain, but probably the earlier that you learn it, um, the better. Yeah. Um, Also curious, you know, in terms of like the divorce, you know, you being in Kansas and your dad being in Costa Rica, as you look back at that, you know, if someone else is in a similar situation where the other parent is not, you know, across town or something like that, um, you know, is, is, is there any piece of advice or, um, you know, thing you can say to them in terms of uh, making the journey a little easier? I think it's, technology makes it so different. So I'll give you this sort of just memory. Um, When we were younger, we, um, when we first got to the States, we were on um, like food stamps and free government lunch when we got to public school. So I guess it was a while that um, we were, we're struggling financially a bit. And um, we, long distance phone calls were really expensive. So there was not um, Wi-Fi. You couldn't call on WhatsApp, um, although that's what we use now. Um, And so we had to be really sort of judicious about when we called Costa Rica, it was an event. And we tried to talk to everyone on the phone in their house and in our house. Um, And so it made regular communication harder. And so it made the distance even greater. And even then when my dad would send letters, um, there used to be like international mail was a white envelope and it had red and blue diagonal lines all around the edges. So you would get, you know, packet or like letters in the mail. But if it had those lines around at that border of blue and red, you knew it was an international letter. And I remember feeling excited when I would see one knowing like this is from my family in Costa Rica. And we did didn't always get to hear what was in the letter because sometimes what was in the letter was not appropriate for a child. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I remember the disappointment of those moments. And so I think it's so much harder to imagine now someone who is a geographic distance that's, you know, even larger than the one we had, but you have technology to connect you in that way. And I think that um, although there might've been more exposure to some conversations that would be harder to understand or, you know, potentially traumatic in the worst case, I think I would if I were a young person now, I would, I would have been messaging and, and FaceTiming and sort of sending memes or whatever it might be in the way that I can communicate with my dad now, if I want to, um, mostly through WhatsApp. Um, but I think that's the encouragement I would give is to have that communication often because it's, it is a way to feel close to people. It's sort of second best, maybe video calls are second best to getting to be in person. Um, but also just kind of getting to share day-to-day stuff is, is another way to stay connected on, you know, it's not this big event where you have to catch up. You can really just be like, here's what I'm looking at and doing today. Yeah. Uh, so you talked about BC, 
Um, do you want to just talk about how you ended up there? What was the process like and why you chose BC? Yeah, I actually um, sent a text message to my friend this weekend about this, thanking her for making like helping um, change the trajectory of my life in a way. So um, my sister and I growing up were um, 17 months apart. She's 17 months older um, and we love each other desperately. And we also are super competitive. And I think in some ways that was really good. And so um, she will be okay with me saying this she did better in school and I did better in sports, but I did really well in school. Desi was just a, I will only get straight A's and A pluses. She got an A minus in pottery once and was very upset about it. Like I remember that very vividly. Um, I was a little bit on the lazier side procrastinator. And I was like, I can kind of phone this in and I can get A's and this is great. And sometimes I'll get a B plus. So that was kind of my vibe um, as a young person. But um, she, I remember when my sister applied to school, she applied early acceptance at some places and she ended up getting into every college she applied to. And she went to Yale. And so when you're following that, you're like, "Uh oh, I better do really, really well. And so I did not get into every college I applied to, but I narrowed it down to Cornell, Northwestern and Boston College. And Boston College had been a school that I applied to because my college counselor was like, I think it could be something you like and they have a common application. So just fill it out and, you know, do it. And I was like, oh, okay. And so I hadn't visited any schools ever. Like we couldn't afford really to do the trips. And so um, once I got in, then it was like, okay, now, now we can go see which one you like best. And so I went to admitted students weekend. And the first one I went to was Northwestern and I had gone to family reunions in Arlington Heights. Um, and so I kind of knew the area and I thought this is, this is probably what I'll pick, but I'm not sure. Cause it was somewhat familiar. And I just liked the idea of it. And I went and visited and I had a good visit, but not a great visit. And there are some reasons why I could explain or not. If you're curious, I can answer, but I'll move on for now. Yeah. Um, that trip I did on my own. The next trip I went with my friend Bree, who I had known since. So when I was younger, um, I skipped second grade. And so when I got to um, third grade, I didn't really have a lot of friends, but there were these two, two girls who became my friends that year. And I am still friends with them to this day. This is the one that I texted over the weekend. One of them, wow. Bree. Brie comes with me. We go to Cornell first and we get there and it was not a great time. And it was just not the right fit. And it was really remote and it was so cold. And they were like showing the bridge where bad things happen. And they were like, the snow that fell in um, November is the same snow you see on the ground today. And it was May. And I was like, this is, I don't think I can do this, even though it's a beautiful campus and a great academic institution. Um, so next was Boston College. So we ended up leaving Cornell early, went to Boston College, and it was the most sort of like quintessential Boston college experience. It was um, the free concert was while we were there. So we got to see outcast and we were like two rows away and it just felt like this, you know, very cool exposure. Um, we went to, I believe a BC hockey game. We went to, um, uh, Oh, I can't remember. And in Cambridge where there's like, is it, Harvard Square. I don't remember. It's been a long time, but yeah. um, we went, we just like saw different parts of the city and we met interesting people. And I loved that they didn't have a Greek system and that people bonded over shared experiences like ski and snowboard club, or like I did for Boston. And so it felt amazing. And I remember kind of getting to the point of making a decision and thinking, well, I should probably go to Northwestern because my sister went to Yale. And if people ask, you know, where did your sister go? And then when you follow up with the answer, and I was about to let I mean, it wasn't super close and like ready to sign, but I was really, really considering picking Northwestern just kind of for the name, even though I had visited these two places and one of them like spoke to my heart and I felt at home and it felt exciting and it really felt more right. And my friend Bree was like, 
what? And kind of talked me through it. And that's what I texted her over the weekend. I was like, I think about this all the time. And I've actually told this story a number of times, but I don't know if I've ever told you. Um, so it was a nice moment that I got to share that with her. But I am probably more grateful for choosing Boston College than I am for, it's on the top five, maybe lists of things that I'm grateful that I made the choice for. One, because I made a choice about what was good for me and not what the optics were or what would look good. And I don't know who this audience was that I was imagining that would care about this, <laughs> but I was just, you know, thinking about it, like for whatever reason. Um, but the friends that I made while I was there are some of my closest friends in the world. Um, and one of them, Lauren, I can talk about was a big inspiration um, with stigma and that experience. But we have a group of, of 13 women who met on, um, you'll know, Newton campus, Hardy third floor. Yeah. Um, and we were all, all on the same floor and some of us in different rooms. And I was lucky because Lauren was my random selection roommate. We stayed together. Um, but the, the friendships I made and the support network that these women have been all of us have been for each other through all of the life events that you just don't want to imagine um, has been so meaningful. And I hope that everyone gets that, you know, that college experience. And then when it came to starting stigma, I mean, two of the people that I talked to earliest on were Joe Roos and Eric Newman. And both of them were like, I like what you're doing. And they were classmates of mine and friends that we, you know, hung out when we were in college all of the years. Um, Joe is an investor now. Um, Eric let me know about SSC Venture Partners. So um, Peter Bell is an investor through through them. Um, and I know he was on the the yeah. um, show. That's why I mentioned yeah, it. But, yeah. um, so there's this like this beautiful connection to Boston College. And then even people here in Chicago, like Kevin Willer, who is actually an LP in Long Jump, one of my investors and an LP and SSC Venture Partners. So there's this beautiful way that I think um, Boston College really um, supports supports the people who are part of the community. And I again, I hope every college has that and I know a lot of them do, but I think BC has something really special. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. Um, and I'm sorry, I keep like, feel like I'm only focusing on like the hardships and the negatives, but just for the value towards the audience, you know, um, you know, you talked about growing up on food stamps, you know, BC's, um, student population, um, you know, is, is decently well off. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, for people that come from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, you know, self-esteem wise, that can be an adjustment, you know, if someone's saying, oh, let's get dinner out in the city you know, in Boston, and it's like, you know, do I have $30 to spend, you know, every weekend like that? Um, I'm curious, you know, especially given what you've just said about how much you love it. Um, you know, was that an adjustment at all in terms of the socioeconomics of that and any advice to someone in a similar position? Oh, um, yeah, I have a lot I can say on this. So no, it was not culture shock because that culture shock started at 11. Um, when I was 11, we um, there was a, a, a college prep private school in Kansas City called Pembroke Hill, um, and they had a scholarship for multicultural people. Um, and um, being born in Costa Rica, we were U.S. citizens because my mom was a U.S. citizen, um, but being born in Costa Rica, we qualified. And they had um, a, a variety of scholarships, and you know, my sister and I had done well in school. Um, and so my mom said, well, just apply, and you don't have to go if you don't want to. And I was really happy where I was. I had a good friend group. I, I'm, I've always been pretty extroverted, so I had a social 
social group that I liked. And um, I think I had a cute boyfriend in sixth grade or whatever the deal was, right? Like I was like good at soccer and I like had my identity and we um, ended up getting scholarships to Pembroke. And my mom said, okay, well, you're going to go. And I said, no, you said I just had to take the test. She's like, I know, but you have to go. And I remember really fighting her on it. And then when I got to Pembroke, my first year, I was bullied pretty, pretty I don't want to say ruthlessly, but it wasn't great. It was like, invite me to a party so that everyone doesn't talk to me. And I'm there stuck with no ride home. Just stuff where like, if I told you the details, I would cry right now because Mm. it just, for whatever reason, those things like can really stick with you. Um, and so I, fortunately things got better. Um, but while I was at Pembroke, I started working when I was 11 years old, like for a neighbor who had this like um, small business and it was under the table. And I think I made like $5 an hour, which was a tremendous amount of money. But I was a person who in high school um, and my sister as well, like we worked because if we wanted, you know, the cute jeans that the kids at our school who were getting, you know, BMWs on their 16th birthday, um, they, they were wearing it. So you want to compete. So at a pretty young age, I lived in a world of, um, you know, not to, to oversimplify it, but sort of like haves and have nots. Um, and there were other scholarship kids too, but for the most part, um, it was a different kind of world. And what I will say is that with those challenges came exposure. And so I love people who work in um, like social impact work and sort of um, racial justice and especially working with youth, they, they will often say you can't be what you can't see. And it's true. If you've never seen something, there's a lot that's sort of connected to that in stigma, but um, more on that later. But this idea that at a very young age, I got to see sort of what was possible in terms of the travel people did and the, the things that they talked about, or even just like the way a really nice house looks on the inside. Like you don't you don't know what those things are when you haven't been in it, but it was hard to, to work so much and to work, you know, at the grocery store. And sometimes people would come into that grocery store or I lifeguarded at country clubs that people belong to. Um, but I still enjoyed it. And I think that there's a component of it. It's just like who I am, but I also think it's like, if to the, to your question earlier about like the advice you can give to young people, just be who you are. And I think that you're happier in life when you focus on what you have, not what you don't have. And that doesn't mean you're not allowed to feel like, man, I wish I had that. I wish I didn't have to work, but I got exposure to that really young. And so um, I, you know, we got scholarships to middle school, high school, and then I got scholarship and financial aid to BC, otherwise I never could have gone. Mm -hmm. Um, But when I got there, I didn't have any fear of that because I had been raised in it. But I will say that like, I mean, I had to quickly find a job because I had to figure out how I was going to pay for food and different things. I think I had help with, you know, the on-campus housing and stuff like that. But I think books, even my grandpa might've helped a little bit with that. I I wish I remembered, but I don't. Um, But I worked 30 hours a week and went to school. And so I think about it now and I'm like, I almost (laughs) didn't process that. Like most of my friends just went to class. Like, yeah just went to class. And so I worked at Rogie's, which doesn't exist anymore, but it was um, like a a bar and restaurant. And um, I, you know, served, I I joke sometimes that I like served like 10 cent wings and dollar drafts to my classmates. Um, But I also met a lot of people that way. And so it was funny when people would be like, Hey, Ariana, do you want to come to this party? And my friends would be like, how do you know that senior? And I'm like, Oh, I like served them beer the other day. (laughs) Um, So I think that, you know, there's, there's a silver lining to everything. And it, it didn't feel it didn't feel bad at BC for me. And I think that the way that I learned to not define myself by how much money I make has been the reason why I've gotten to do some really incredible things in life because I'm not, um, I don't have a lot to lose financially. Like I can launch a startup and, and feel really excited about it and do something that I think is going to make the world better. Um, because I'm not, 
so focused on sort of like where I stack up financially to others. Yeah. You talked about it a little bit, but, you know, obviously pre-med to film and history, um, that's a, a bit of a change. You know, if you can go back to that time period, right, because there's going to be a college kid listening to this, making that change, and maybe the parents aren't supportive or something like that. You know, in that moment, how tough was that? And maybe, you know, what gave you the confidence at that time to make such a you know big decision in your life i think a big part of it is when you get yourself to where you are a lot of other people don't have a say so if my parents had paid for my school they might have said we paid for this and we're not going to keep paying for it if i don't have that type of mom but um i think parents can do that and sometimes they're doing it they're really doing it for like um, their child to to do well or you know they have good intentions i should say um but when you got yourself to where you are you get to make the choices and i think that's you know a lesson that every person could learn overall like if you make sure to uh, make sure that you put yourself in a good position yourself and that you didn't rely on someone else if you didn't have to. I'm not saying never rely on anyone, but the more you can build the life you want for yourself, the less anyone can tell you that it's not what you should be doing. And so for me, I had worked really hard to get there and I wasn't going to lose my scholarship because I changed my major. And for me, what it really boiled down to was um, I sat in an organic chemistry class and I remember thinking, I have like a decade more of this. If, if this is what I pick, that's that's what's going to happen. And another big piece was I was also in the honors program at BC. And so um, being in the honors program and being pre-med meant that you could not study abroad. And I didn't realize that when I signed up for it. And it was because the number of classes you had to take to complete both programs, yeah. there wasn't time for you to go abroad for any period of time. Yeah. And I knew I was going to go abroad because it was like included in my tuition and I would be able to do that. And I had always wanted to live abroad. Um, I, I always joke that I have like more Costa Rican blood than American blood because I'm just happy when it's humid and I'm warm and I live in Chicago and went to school in Boston. So I don't know what I'm doing, <laughs> but um, I, uh, yeah, I just, I wanted to enjoy my life. And, um, I wasn't enjoying the classes and I thought this, I could spend a decade of my life doing things I don't enjoy. And the reason I'm doing it is to help people. And there are other ways to help people. And part of the reason I'm doing it is the security of knowing that if I complete steps one through 250, um, I will get to the end of this and I will be a doctor. And I don't think that's as certain as I thought it was at that time, but I knew I was giving up a level of security and some prestige that I think I wanted. I think when you when you are feel, felt to me, um, you may, when you're made to feel less than, which did happen occasionally in high school and college, um, only by really insecure people who honestly like don't have a lot going on that they make a young person feel bad for, for not having a lot of money. Um, but you do have it in you. You do have a bit of a chip on your shoulder that you're like, I want to prove something. And I knew I was smart and I knew I was hardworking. And I think that that felt like a sure thing. But I leaned into this idea of do you want your life to look like this for 10 years? And the answer was no. And I also could look at it and say, I'm usually pretty naturally good at a lot of academic things I try. And I'm not with this. I have to work really hard to be average. And so that has to be a signal. So I remember I actually flipped through a course book that asked that, that had like all of the majors in the School of Arts and Sciences that I was in. 
and I was flipping through the pages and I saw a film and I was like, well, that's interesting because I had been a writer and I had been a photographer. And in my mind, I thought, well, that's kind of just combining two mediums that I really love, like storytelling and writing and visual arts, but I'll learn about like video. This will be great. And I went to my intro to film class and I remember it was like in a basement and taught by a um, not super charismatic priest. And I loved it. I was like, oh, this just like excites me. And by the time I got to my senior year, I remember my roommates being like, I can't even watch a movie with you anymore because I'd be like, do you see that sound design that was recorded in a studio? Can you hear it? Because, and I was just so excited to show off my like new talent. Um, But it was, it was the right call. And I felt, I felt really alive in the classes and I felt really alive in the work. And even in, in the work I do today, the thing I get most excited about is the storytelling and the filmmaking and the, um, you know, capturing people and then showing, showing them back to themselves and getting to have them say or feel um, really proud. And I've had people, so many people say like, I can't believe that's me. And when you get to give that feeling to someone, it's just this very, very beautiful experience. Yeah. Um, You know, obviously it's, it's hard to summarize uh, 15 years um, like in a, it quickly, but I mean, I just, Maybe do you want to give us some uh, level of understanding of what you did post BC and um, prior to Stigma app? Yeah, so I um, it's hard to find a job in film, shocking. Um, and so I actually got a job at a company that has really grown since I worked for them. My first job out of college was with ID Tech Camps, which is a technology camp for kids that is... Um, at this point, I mean, it's, it was nationwide then, but like really, really nationwide now. And they partner with colleges and universities and they let young people sort of come on campus and they get to be in a computer lab all summer. And they had um, a film course and I ended up applying for that and then getting picked to teach this course to younger kids where it was Photoshop, basic video game design and um, like video um, video or filmmaking. And I remember being like, I do not know how to make video games. And they're like, oh, it's really basic. You're teaching seven-year-olds. So like you can learn in a week. Um, and so I did. And that was great. Um, and uh, from there, that got me to Austin. And I actually thought I really wanted to live in Austin um, because my grandpa lived there and I had visited a couple of times and it just seemed like a really fun place to go. And again, I wanted to be warm. Four years in Boston, I was out, I was ready. I went from graduation at BC where it was, I think, 45 degrees and sleeting to literally days later being on campus uh, at UT Austin and it was 107. And I was like, (laughs) I don't know how to process this temperature change. Um, But I stayed there for two and a half years and I ended up working at GSDNM at an ad agency there. I think that was a fantastic job for a creative. So I started out as a creative project manager. And what I learned in that role was how to be more organized than I naturally am, but also how creative work gets done in a business setting. And I had to talk to every player on every side of something. So from the moment a client said that they wanted something and the client I worked on was AT&T to the billboard that I could see or the TV commercial or whatever it was. And so seeing all of the hands that had to touch something for a great piece of creative work to get out the door was really, really interesting. Um, I left there to work for a, a startup, which was the nation's first text message based um, dating TV show. So there was like, it was a green screen and a host and we would use the news station and we were live seven nights a week from 2 a.m. to 4 a.m. And I directed the live show at like 22. Um, Maybe I was 23, but I think I was 22. So it was super early and they were like, you're cheap. We would love to work with you. And I was like, I love film. And I just worked way, way, way too, like 80 hours a week. It was way too much, Um, but got good experience there. And then fast forwarding, I ended up leaving Austin to go to New York City because I'd always wanted to live there. Um, 
And I just wanted to kind of see what that was like, but the job I had there, I didn't totally love. And I was thinking, okay, I'm going to go back to Austin. And my sister was living in Chicago and she was launching her first startup. And she was like, well, just come here for a year. We haven't lived in the same city for so long. And I was like, all right, one year. And now I've been here for 14 years, which is shocking. Um, But I would say, you know, to kind of like truncate that, that whole experience, um, I marketing was sort of an easy place to go because I had worked in advertising and I understood things like that. Um, I also was a graphic designer and video editor and could camera op and, and just like do things related to like my creative side. And so I really found a home and brand work. Um, so it kind of started with business development, but then creating the assets for like, okay, what is it that we're going to share with people and assets we needed for marketing? And so brand is really such a beautiful way to tell stories for companies. And it can be about the company itself and it can be about the products that they make. So I ended up doing work for companies like Dell had a new document storage solution. I had to make people really care about it or Deloitte wanted to go after the biggest line of business that they had ever gone after and they needed to tell a story about it. And I got to a point where I was really doing well with the storytelling piece where like Deloitte would fly me to New York and I would, I thought that was just the coolest thing that they would fly me out and I would be in 30 Rock and I'd be there for a week just like hustling and getting creative work done for this consulting firm. And so I think that really helped me build my confidence around my ability to tell a story and tell a visual story. Um, And I was also doing work that was getting on like commercial, like broadcast TV commercials. And so I started to really believe in myself as a director, which took a long time Um, to call myself a director. took me years of doing the work before I I thought I could. And part of it was because it was corporate. Part of it because it was because it wasn't the the directors I studied in film school. Um, But I think I, you know, I kind of finally got there, which was so exciting. And um, at a certain point was, consulting, kind of just doing different types of work like that for companies, and then joined um, a tech startup in Chicago because I was consulting and they said, please join us. And they offered me the opportunity to build a brand from scratch. So it was pre-product, pre-launch. And they said, build it, create it, manage the creative services team. I managed a lot of the marketing functions and even like comms and PR by the time that I left that company. Um, So it was really this like kind of organic way of getting there. But I wasn't able to just leave school and go try and make it in New York or LA. I didn't have the option. And most people don't um, to say like, I want to go be an artist and I'm, you know, I'm going to make money right away. And so I think it, it was a longer path for me to get to kind of getting to do the dream job that I get to do now. And I had to make it for myself. Mm. Like I get to do my dream job, but, but I created it. And that's a very cool feeling too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's awesome. Uh, so you know, within this time period, um, during our pre-call, um, you talked about 2008, um, you had, I think you had your first panic attack and, mm-hmm. um, just like, um, I think you live with generalized anxiety disorder. Um, you know, I guess I- I'm curious, um, you know, how did you end up, I, you know, for people that aren't, you know, knowledgeable in mental health, you know, um, they might not recognize, you know, their first panic attack. Right. And, um, you know, what got you to steps of under, like either learning from, you know, a professional or figuring out, you know, that you do live with generalized anxiety disorder. Oh, I'm so glad you asked this question. And um, we ask people this a lot at Stigma and I am part of the statistics. So there is a lot of data um, that shows that the average amount of time between first experiencing a symptom of, of mental illness or struggling with your mental health and first seeking treatment 
is 11 years. And sometimes it's 12 and it can be up to 15 with different studies, but the average is 11 years. And I think so much of that has to do with a lack of exposure and a lack of education around what these things are. But for me, to the, the memory that you um, pointed out, I, um, I knew what schizophrenia looked like <laughs> because it was in my world, but no one at home in high school was talking about um, mental health very much. It just wasn't a, a topic of conversation. And um, for me, I remember being a very young child and crying when I had to go to bed. And my mom would say to me, why are you crying? And I would say, because I'm scared. And she would say, what are you scared of? And I couldn't tell her. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I said, I don't know. And she had no answer. It almost felt more scary. I was like, oh, well, she's the grown up, and she's supposed to have all of the answers and she doesn't know either. And I can look back at that now and go, those were certainly my first symptoms of anxiety, this feeling of, you know, fear and fear of the unknown and, uh, maybe panic. And, you know, I can't step into my body then, but the, the memory of that fear at night is, is very real. Yeah. And so, um, I didn't, um, regularly live with that. Like I said, I, I am an extroverted person. I didn't have, you know, issues with social anxiety or things that were like really complicated where it would have warranted me like seeking treatment or help. Um, but I probably navigated anxiety. Like I had stomach aches all the time when I was in middle school and I was like, Oh, my stomach just hurts. And they say that in children often, um, struggling with your mental health. And it doesn't mean that you have a disorder that must be diagnosed, but you can have anxiety and not have diagnosed anxiety disorder. And I think a lot of people don't understand that. Um, but they say for children, um, if children are going to the nurse a lot, if they um, have a tummy ache a lot, if they have a headache a lot, um, there are certain cues for children where they haven't learned the vocabulary yet to express what it is that they're feeling. And so it can manifest in these more physical symptoms. And so I look at middle school when I was bullied, that was the time that I had stomach aches constantly. Um, but so I was in my twenties before I had my first panic attack and I, um, was at my 25th birthday party and my aunts from Costa Rica were in town. This was in Chicago and I was with a group of friends and family and it was happy. And I think the thing that happens for people outside of the experience of panic attacks is often they're like, well, what are you nervous about? And the, the hard thing, if you're someone who goes through panic attacks and experiences them, like I do, there's not always a source you can point to. Like, it's not that easy. You're not like, well, I failed this test or, well, I got a really bad review at work. And then I had a panic attack. It's so often is sort of this like stirring that's probably happening. And then there's some moment where it expresses itself. And so I remember I was talking to someone I didn't know very well. And as I was talking to her, I started to have this like tunnel vision where everything went dark and it was just getting to this like very small area of light. And I remember my heart was racing and I felt like I couldn't breathe. And then I panicked thinking, what is this person thinking of what I must look like right now? That was the thing that took me a long time to learn that like the panic I was feeling on the inside that I was like, I must look very strange to anyone looking at me from the outside. It just, it doesn't match up. And so, you know, I remember times where I was with someone who I was close to where I said, like, I'm having a panic attack and they're like, I can't tell. Um, and that was helpful. I had some moments like that in therapy when I talked about some hard things that, um, kind of learning what it looked like on the outside was meaningful to me for whatever reason. Um, but in that moment, I had never had a panic attack before. And so I had no idea what was happening. And I had lived in fear probably my whole life um, from at least, you know, tween age on 
worrying that I would also be schizophrenic. Um, and so I had read the data and the statistics and it's more common in males than it is in females. And in males, it presents typically younger from like 17 to 19. And in females, it can be 18 to 21. Like I had all these things memorized and known and I was outside of that window, but I wasn't that far outside of that window. And I remember thinking to myself, is this it? Like, is this a psychotic break? Is this what that feels like? And imagine what my life would have been like, what that experience would have been like if people had talked about what panic attacks were, because then I would have better understood. I wouldn't have had to deal with this very crippling fear. And I love my father. And I, I think people with every version of mental health and illness and every range of that are beautiful. So this is not to discredit anyone with schizophrenia or, or my father, but it's more that this thing that I feared because I didn't fully understand it, I really thought was going to happen or was happening in that moment. And so I remember at some point the moment passed and I kind of moved on, but it was one of those things where I didn't go, well, I should go get that checked out. It was like, well, I'm going to hope that that never happens again because ignorance is bliss. And if it doesn't, I don't have to deal with it. And that's not a healthy way to handle it. And that's what I don't want people to do. Um, but I, I've thought about that moment a lot because it was probably a few more years before on our WhatsApp um, thread between all of the, the BC roommates, um, I said something about anxiety and learned that eight out of the 14 women had had panic attacks or were on anxiety medication, but we had just never talked about it before. Right. And we were the closest of close friends, as close as you can get. Yeah. We talked about things that seemed way harder and more complicated. And I think that is because human beings are not in the habit of doing it. That's, you know, why stigma exists, but also this is, this is something we're going to have to teach people to do. And it's a hard thing. It's one of the hardest things to do, to talk about the stuff that makes us feel vulnerable, to ask for help, to say that we're struggling. I struggle with it to this day. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 2016, um, a really nice thing happens in your life. Uh, you and John get married. Um, talk about, you know, um, I guess, you know, how you felt comfortable with that. And, um, you know, did you have conversations with him prior to getting married about mental health? Or has that been sort of a journey, you know, as you've grown in your knowledge of being able to speak about it? Uh, yes, for us, it was a requirement um, because um, John grew up um, in the, the sort of born into the projects of Philly um, and was uh, orphaned at a pretty young age um, in the foster care system, um, I think in about 14 homes total, like with family and foster home placements included, um, and was horrifically abused. So when I met him, um, he had not um, talked about it a lot with anyone ever. And as he started to open up to me, I remember saying to him, you have to go talk to someone about this because it's important that you process it. And I have to go talk to someone about this because I don't know how to process it because it was, it was some pretty heavy trauma. And I wanted to honor his, his um, secrets and not share it with anyone, but I also holding on to it felt like, I don't know how to carry something this heavy. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a skill too, that you have to learn, like from the people that I've interviewed at stigma who talk about how their loved ones can help them when they're in a moment of struggling. Um, I think the key so often is like asking what would be helpful of that person in a moment when they're not struggling. And then when they are having kind of an action plan, that was something I learned that I thought was really powerful, but I didn't know any of that. I just knew like, I want to be there for him, but I also don't know how to be there for him. Um, so for us, mental health was always like a pretty, um, pretty open topic of conversation. And, you know, I, I very much started, 
I had gone to therapy once in my twenties and had a very bad experience. And this is another thing I find a lot when I interview people, um, that one bad therapy experience, and that can be for a lot of reasons. It's not, um, necessarily because it's a bad therapist. It can often be, it's a bad fit. Sometimes there are therapists that aren't, you know, the best. Um, but it, it can also be that the patient isn't ready. Like there's so many parts to that equation, like any relationship. Um, but when someone has a bad therapy experience, I think sometimes it's easy to say, well, that's what therapy is. And therapy didn't really work for me. Um, and so I think, uh, that's an important topic to just kind of like cover and make sure that people know that if, if you don't like the first one, it might be that you could find someone you really do like. And sometimes it takes more than a couple, um, to figure out who is, is a good fit for what you need and are looking for. Um, but what I realized was I, I had this bad experience. So I was one of those people and I was like, Oh, that's what therapy is. That's not for me. I don't enjoy that at all. That didn't feel helpful. And I think I gave it three sessions and then didn't go back. And then it, the catalyst for me going back to therapy was actually so, some of these conversations with John. And then I started getting into some of, uh, of my own work and I have been, um, on and off have seen the same therapist, um, since that time. Um, and I think there are seasons in my life where I need it more and and need it less. Um, But that's for me personally, how I use therapy. Everyone is different. Some people will always use therapy, just like they will always use a personal trainer when they go to the gym. And some people are like, I don't need the personal trainer. I know the exercises I want to do. I'm disciplined and I do them. And I love that analogy because I once, once met a man who said, tell me this, I have a friend who's been going to therapy for 15 years. And I say, if you've been going to therapy for 15 years, it's not working. And when that happened, I said, can I ask you a question, sir? Do you work out? And then I got into the analogy from there, but tried to help him understand that like mental health is work, just like physical health is work. You don't get to be physically healthy if you're not thoughtful about what you put into your body and thoughtful about the amount of activity you give it. And the same is true of your mind. Like it just works that way. And I think that's one of the harder parts for people to understand about mental health in general is that if you want it to be good, you're going to have to invest something into it. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you referred to this earlier in the interview, um, May of 2020, unfortunately you lost a friend of yours, um, Lauren, I'm, I'm curious, you know, um, now being a couple of years, is there something you've learned from the grief journey, um, you know, that you would give as advice to someone that's, you know, who's, who's losing, you know, a friend in their twenties or thirties, uh, maybe recently? No. Um, but the reason why is, is I think grief is one of the most personal things there is in the world, kind of like love. Um, and so how I grieve is not going to be the same as how anyone else grieves. Um, I actually lost a friend in my twenties and my thirties. Um, one of my very close friends in my twenties, um, got meningitis. She was sick one day and gone the next, and it was devastating. And I love Brooke and still think about her constantly. Um, and the way I grieved Brooke, someone who I lost without a moment's notice, without the ability to say goodbye, um, felt different and in some ways similar to Lauren who got a rare and aggressive cancer and we lost her in less than a year. Um, so I think, you know, the, the only thing I know about grief and can say is that, um, you, you kind of have to just like lean into it. Like there are a bunch of analogies and they're not all helpful. So like, I'll share one, but I, I don't know if it's helpful or not. Cause it just doesn't always work for everyone. Um, but they talk about grief being like you have this grief button inside of a box and inside of the box is a a giant red ball, like a rubber ball, softball, whatever it is, but it'll bounce. And uh, in the beginning, 
the ball is so big, it's just expanding to fill the entire space. So when you first lose someone, all you feel is that button pressed down. That button is just constantly pressed. And then over time, they say that that ball can get a little bit smaller, but it's always moving around. So that's why you get these moments where you're like, I'm fine. I'm fine for days. And then you get hit with a wave of grief that just takes you out for days. Um, I think that, you know, that that analogy has sort of been one of the the better ones for me to help me understand how unpredictable those swings can be. I think when you um, when when you are doing things that are going to remind you of the person, like I had the opportunity to go back to BC um, for the first time um, since Lauren died, and uh, I was asked to come back and like teach a seminar to the entrepreneurship club, and it was just such an honor. It was such a cool full circle moment, such a like feeling of. Um, accomplishment and arrival in these different ways and also nostalgic and hard. And I, you know, I traveled with my um, creative partner who, um, you know, was obviously like, we have always have different hotel rooms, but like, I wouldn't have had my partner come with me. I wouldn't have had my sister come with me. I wouldn't have had a friend come with me to like stay in the room with me. I knew I was going to need to cry. And I also was going to need to perform. And um, for this, you know, this class, and and then I had a shoot while I was there and we did a mental health pop-up with college students. It was fantastic. Um, But I needed to give my space, myself the space to like ball when I needed to, to like be on that campus and think about her and be in the moment doing these things and going, Lauren's rooting for me. And I'm living this life that I promised her I was going to live and then be able to go home and be a, a real human being and say, thinking about Lauren all day in the space where I spent so much time with her and was, you know, had such fond memories of being there with her in a time in life that was so carefree. Um, and you, you know, fast forward into your late thirties when you, you know, have all of the things that life can throw at you in in the time between college and your late thirties. And it can't possibly be as carefree because you've lived a bigger life. You've, you've lost and you've um, suffered in ways that you hadn't when you were young. And so it was, it was processing some of that too. But I think for me, um, creating space to grief has been really helpful. Um, not everyone can do this, but um, I couldn't with Brooke, but with Lauren, I asked her before um, she passed away. I said, I, I know you don't want to do this, but um, I really want a video, a video. Cause I'm like, I speak very much in, in video yeah. and I really want a video that I can watch when I miss you. Will you record something for me? And she said, yeah. And I didn't know when it would happen, but I know Lauren well enough to know that it was going to happen. It was never not going to get done. Um, and one day she and her husband, you know, on an email sent me this video and I watch it a lot and it is just one of the most valuable things that I have in the world. And I watch it sometimes when I'm sad and I watch it sometimes when I'm happy and sometimes when I just like want to hear her voice. And I think that um, talking about her and get letting myself get emotional is one of the ways that I honor her and I honor grief. So when I get to talk to college kids and it's a fair amount, which is just the coolest thing in the world. Cause it, I, at one point I considered being a teacher too. I love getting to talk to young people. Um, I always say there is room in business for tears. I've raised $575,000 crying in every pitch I've ever done. And you can ask anyone on my cap table, every single investor has seen me cry. And it's when I talk about Lauren, um, sometimes when I talk about my son, but, um, I do that because it invites her into the experience with me. It invites her to like, join me in what I'm doing. Um, and so I think with grief, everyone is going to be different, but, the, the depth of your grief is usually a reflection of the depth of your love. And so when the moments get as hard and as dark as they can possibly get, 
if you can try and remind yourself of that in that moment and find a way as impossible as it seems to um, be grateful that you got to experience a friendship that deep and a love that deep. Um, I think that's the, the only, the only way to start climbing out of the hole because it can feel like a hole or a cave. Like you just, you have to find a little bit of light. And sometimes the light is the, the gratitude for, for having gotten to have such a strong connection in your life. Yeah. Uh, in 2020, you also became a mother. Um, you know, how has motherhood been and how has been uh, raising a son with autism? Yeah. So I actually, River was born in 2018. And so, um, no, that's okay. But it's, I only correct it because it sort of ties to Lauren and, and what that experience has been. Um, I am just a big believer in, so I've, I've interviewed a lot of people about, um, sobriety and addiction. And, um, a lot of people will say the opposite, but may learn this in programs they've done, but the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety, it's community. Um, and what I know is that so often people who are dealing with, um, substance use disorder and addiction, are self-medicating because they are struggling with their mental health or in pain in some way. And so I think that where for them, the solution used to be um, some sort of substance, they find a path and a way towards the solution being people and community. Um, And I share that because um, I remember when a doctor first suggested that we should get our son um, tested because he had um, a language delay and he's in a dual language household. We speak Spanish and English in the home. And um, I said, you know, but I've, I've read that like, it can be that when there are two languages, that's why they are, their language development is slower. And we went to this newer, we'd gone to a newer pediatrician for the 18 month appointment. And she was really blunt. And she was like, he does not have enough words, go get him tested. And in that moment I called Lauren and I talked to her about, it. and of course, John too, but um she was just like a rock for me in that, you know, in that experience. And I think when we're navigating these things in life that we're scared about and that we feel vulnerable, vulnerable about, and that there are complex emotions associated with, because I have to be honest and say that my thought in that moment was, I hope he's not, which I feel guilty about now. I didn't know what I didn't know. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I feel bad that I felt that way, but I think it's also important for people who are, you know, in my position and other life experiences to not pretend um, that we didn't have bad feelings because shame thrives in secrecy and the dark. And I would be ashamed of that if I didn't talk about the fact that it was a terrible thing to think because River is outstanding and fantastic. And I am so lucky to be his mom. And I tell him that every single night before bed. So his ego is going to be just fine. (laughs) Um, Self-confidence check. Uh, But I remember then we went and did the test. And I remember thinking as we did the test, like, I know what they're going to say. And I knew I wasn't going to get the results. Um, right away. And cause it took like, I want to say like six to eight weeks or something like that. And Lauren really wasn't doing well. And so, um, I remember being in the car with John and, um, I said, he was like, do you want to call Lauren or something? He kind of knew that she was my, my person to, to call in that moment. And I hadn't told any of our BC friends yet. I just wasn't, wasn't ready. Mm-hmm. And, um, cause I didn't want to talk about it cause I didn't know how I felt about it. And I called Lauren and, um, I just bawled and I bawled and I told her the truth. And I said, it's because once I get this information, 
I don't know if you're going to be here and I don't know if I can call you and I don't know if I can do this without you. And um, I pray for everyone that they get to have a friendship that deep. Like I often call Lauren my friendship soulmate, like someone who you can just be yourself with and they accept every part of who you are and think that you're great. Um, and we'll tell you that whenever you need to hear it. And um, Lauren died um, May 12, 2020. And it was six weeks after that, that um, River got his diagnosis. And so it was just one of those experiences in life where I was already at a level of, I had never lived with depression. I had never gone through depression. Um, I definitely had situational depression from this experience with Lauren and anticipatory grief before she passed. Um, but I just remember thinking, I have never had the feeling of, I don't know how I'm going to get out of bed. And I had that feeling. And now I had to get out of bed and be an autism mom. I had to uh, oh, guess what? His preschool doesn't take your insurance. So now you don't have a place for him to go get this therapy that he needs yesterday because you better get on it right away. And I could do an entire podcast interview about how poorly treated parents of um, neurodivergent children are when it comes to marketing on Instagram and Facebook um, and the way that they sort of guilt you into thinking that you're not buying enough things for your child and that you're not thinking of enough things, even when you're reading all the books and doing all the stuff. Um, but it was an, probably probably the most challenging time in my life um, because I had to do this thing that was really hard. I didn't feel like I had the emotional reserves to do it and someone who I had looked to, and she was not the only one to be clear. My sister is fantastic. John was there. My mom was like, there were a lot of my friends, like there were a lot of people, but this person who always knew what to say and always knew how to make me feel better wasn't there. Um, and so I had to learn how to navigate that. And I had to learn how to forgive myself for, um, feeling disappointment because that's what I felt. And again, this is something I say, because we have to talk about this stuff. I felt disappointed. And then I felt so much shame for feeling disappointed. Um, and one of the things I've said a lot about, um, parenting a child with autism, and I, it, this could go for a lot of things. I just know my experience of, of river and autism is that I think every parent knows that at some point you're going to come to the realization that your child is not going to be a mini version of you just because you loved soccer. They might never play a sport just because you love to write. They might hate reading and writing. Um, and I think so often, especially in like earlier decades, you know, generations ago, people were trying to make their children just this like walking miniature version of them. Yeah. And what happens when your child is faced with developmental differences is that you instantly have to let that go. Like that dream and vision of the child that you imagined they would be is never going to be the child that they are. No matter if they are neurotypical, if they don't have developmental delays, no matter what it is, that will never, ever, ever, ever be true because they are on their own path. And so I, um, you know, I think I was struggling a fair bit. And I remember uh, a woman who is friends with Kathy and Bree, my friends from growing up, um, who had gone to the, the public high school and we had to separate for that, but they had their public school friends and I met their friends. And so I knew them, but didn't know this woman that well. Her name's Lizzie. She sent me a message and said, hey, um, there's this mom that I know and she's fantastic and she's the best advocate for her son. And um, she, you know, if you're, you're interested, I can, I can put you in touch. And I remember when the offer happened um, and I've said this before too, but um, when people said, do you want to talk to this super mom? She does all the things and she knows all the stuff. Do you want to talk to her? I remember thinking, no, I do not. I just want to get the information she has in her brain to tell me. And I would describe it as I was at the bottom of this mountain and there were nothing but thick, dark clouds. 
and this treacherous terrain that I was afraid of and did not want to climb. And there was a force pushing me. I had no choice because I didn't have a choice. I had to learn this stuff. And I remember thinking like, these are women who are further and not that there are non-binary people and men and all, all different genders who are going through this too, but the people I was offered introductions to were female moms. Um, and I remember thinking like they're further up the mountain. I can't see them through the clouds. And someone's asking if I want to talk to them. And I just want them to hand me a map. Like I want them to reach through the clouds, hand me a map. So I have a little bit of an idea of what's coming. And I never responded because I, I wasn't there. Um, and then I got a message out of nowhere on Instagram from a woman I didn't know. And she said, Hey, I'm Lizzie's friend. Do not respond to this message. I don't want a response. I just want to tell you about this book. And the book was called Special by Melanie DeMitt. And it's a story of a really independent woman who was a journalist and traveling the world and couldn't wait to have kids. And then she had a child or she got pregnant and the pregnancy was perfect and nothing was wrong and everything was great. And she ended up having a child who was born with the most severe form of cerebral palsy you can have. And so her child um, won't ever speak and won't ever walk. And she suddenly was looking at a life that was so different from the life that that she was living and the one she had imagined with her child. And people had sent me like poems about going to Holland. And like, it's a very popular thing to send to people who, um, who have children with autism. And that's not to discredit the author or the friends of mine who sent it to me. I love them for doing it. Um, But it didn't resonate. I was like, I don't, the analogy is like, you think you're going on a trip to Paris, but you end up going on a trip to Holland and you just have to appreciate the tulips. And it was just, you can see by the way I'm repeating it. It just, for me, it didn't resonate. Yeah. But here was this woman who was like, don't you dare write me back. Here's a book. And then I read that book and the author talked about the things that were in my head. She talked about, I'm ashamed that I felt that way. And I'm ashamed that when people said my child is a gift, I didn't believe it. I thought that's just something people say because they're in something hard. And she just put to words and then published in a book some of the thoughts that I had that I thought made me a monster. And um, it was one of the most freeing things that happened in that process. And also it changed how it changed my perspective on everything. And it was because I wasn't being so hard on myself anymore. I had more emotional reserves to like do the things I needed to do. I didn't feel so alone for having the thoughts that I was having. And it came from a place of, hearing from someone who had been through my exact situation and not exact because of course the, the differences in our children are different, but um, someone who just made me feel less alone because they understood what it was like to have a child with a disability. And I built a company to, to help that happen for more people. And so I think, you know, there's like the stuff with my father and like this stuff I, I navigated with John and the stuff that, um, you know, I, he and I navigate with river these hardships, these are the things that often, you know, yes, build our character, but make us inspired to do the kinds of things and the type of work that people feel alive when they connect with. Like people feel, I'm so proud of stigma. I'm so proud of the brand that we built. Like, yes, I made a career on building brands, but we've built a brand that people want to be successful. Like people really don't want stigma to fail. And that's its own unique kind of pressure. Um, but it's also, it's just something to be so proud of because it's it's tapping into what human beings need, which is a sense of connectedness to people who understand them. Yeah. So let's start talking about stigma. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I guess, you know, um, in your words, you know, uh, I guess what is, what are the benefits of the app for the user and um, you know, what does the app offer? 
I think the biggest benefit is like a perfect segue. So well done interviewer um, to what we were just talking about, which is that I, I often say we don't go to like cocktail parties or dinner parties and people have a hello, my name is sticker that also lists like I have anxiety disorder. I'm the parent of a child of disabilities and I also live with panic attacks. Um, but how nice it would be if that if that were the case. Um, and it was at the stigma launch party. So we made it optional, but we said you all have these lanyards and these name tags that are these huge plastic things. Um, and here are stickers with different conditions and lived experiences and take a blue one for something you've experienced and take a black one for something that someone you love has experienced. And before the end of the night, have a conversation with someone who shares the same sticker as you. So we wanted to create this like real life uh, example of that. And I think that the biggest benefit of the app is that it helps people instantly find people who share their lived experience. Second to that is that it's very immediate support. So to be clear, stigma is not a replacement for treatment or therapy. It's actually a, a tool that can increase your readiness for treatment or therapy, or it can be used as a supplement. So we have many therapists who recommend us to their patients. We have entire practices that do it. We have individual therapists that do it because what they understand is we have built it in such a way that it's not designed to ever be able to replace therapy. But we did have one um, member and she is okay with me sharing this. And I always give that disclaimer, but I never share anything that um, people share with us unless they give me permission. Um, she didn't ask for hope. I offered her hope. And then she sent me a thank you message and it was a video. And I said, can I share this with everyone? Because this captures exactly what I think the benefit is of this. And she was like, yes, absolutely. She's someone who I know. And she was like, I want to help whatever, whatever will help you. Um, but one of the things she said, and I'll kind of paraphrase this is my family and friends know what it is that I'm navigating. They understand that I have, you know, this mental health struggles that I do have, but I don't feel like I can call them on a Tuesday morning as they're getting their kids ready for school and ask them to tell me and reassure me that I'm not a monster because those feelings don't come at convenient times. They can come late at night. They can come early in the morning. And I think the hardest thing is when you have that feeling and then you have to go to work and you have to be on and you have to deliver the big pitch or um, take thoughtful notes or make sure that your plan for building the, the new product is thoughtful and you don't miss anything. And having to perform and deliver in that sort of professional way when you're struggling, when you feel like you can't talk to anyone about it, even if you're in therapy and even if best case scenario, you can afford therapy once a week, that moment can happen the day after you had therapy or days away from when you would go. And so it's not, again, meant to replace what that therapy is, but it's meant to give you an outlet to say, this is a safe space. You can come here and you can find people who are only here to be kind. So we often describe stigma as a community committed to kindness um, and we moderate every message. So it is not a public social media platform. It's not like a Facebook group where everyone has a profile and you can DM each other and there are likes and comments and upvotes. Like there's just no vanity. The idea behind it is you can go into our app and you can filter stories by lived experience and condition and identity categories. So if I want to see um, other people with anxiety or other people talking about panic attacks, I can filter by that and see all different kinds of people of different ages and races and genders and sexual identities and all of these different things to show me that, you know, a living proof, I'm not alone, but also in these people's stories, I get to hear how do they manage it? How, what are the tools in their toolkit? And so we came up with the tagline crowdsourcing hope for that reason, um, because that's really when you're struggling, what you need, you need that light when you're in the cave, you need that little bit of hope. And so often 
it is a more powerful sort of version of that when it's someone who gets it, when it's someone who totally understands what it's like. Um, so we allow people the opportunity to select their audience. So you can say, um, I'm doing this ask for hope because I had a panic attack and I only want other people with panic attacks to see this. So if you have had panic attacks and Joe has not, when you go into stigma app, you will see my ask for hope, but Joe, uh, Joe won't. And so the idea overall is how do we create safe spaces for people to practice talking about their mental health? Because that is required to get on the path to healing. So to kind of bring it full circle, I talked about that 11 year window so many solutions that are fantastic solutions in the mental health space and in the mental health tech space are really focused on that moment once someone has raised their hand, once they've typed into Google, therapists in my area. Um, what we're focused on is identifying that 60 to 80% of people with treatable mental illness who don't seek treatment helping them understand that it's okay to talk about, giving them access to language and vocabulary you can use to express how you're feeling, and then exposing them through our sponsored partnerships with different types of behavioral health and mental health and wellness providers to what exists out there. Because in studies that ask, um, there was a 48,000 person st study done that was global, and they wanted to understand why people don't seek treatment for their, their mental health. And they broke it down by country. And in the United States, the number one reason was lack of trust of medical treatment. So people just don't trust the treatment. And I think that has a lot to do with the media. So you can think of movies like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and, and examples of things where if you say you're not doing well, that's where you go. Um, so there's some of that, I think, lingering. But the number two reason is that people don't know where to go. They don't know where to start. They don't know what's available. And if you go to Google, not to discredit Google, but if you go search on Google, the answers you're going to find to your questions about where to go are going to be the companies that have the best SEO and the most money for keyword. Like that is like for the AdWord network. And when you go to, let's say that you're the friend of someone who's going through something, your friend tells you, I just got a bipolar diagnosis and you've never been through it. You don't know anyone who's ever had that diagnosis. If you go to Google, what you will find is a 2,500 word blog post written by an SEO specialist, probably with stock photos of someone hugging someone else and like visine tears and these things that are not at all emotionally connectable. It's so hard to connect with them because it doesn't feel like it was created for you. But imagine instead, if everyone just knew to go to stigma. Because when you went there, not only did you get to see 50 people with bipolar disorder talking about their experience, you got to see people who are the loved ones of those people talking about, this is what it's like to be the partner of someone who lives with bipolar disorder. And here's what we found that works really well. Um, maybe you'd find resources in that same listing so you can filter by condition. And so ultimately our big vision is to be the most trusted mental health content destination in the world because education is the start. There's a tremendous lack of education when it comes to the area of mental health. And I often start with the simplest thing, just the definition of what it means. So many people equate mental health and mental illness. So people will tell me, I don't have mental health. And I say, we all do, <laughs> just like we all have physical health. Um, and so I think that helping people first and foremost understand that, that mental health does not equal mental illness. Mental health is something we all have. And sometimes it's strong and sometimes it's weak and we're all kind of managing it. And we have to work on it. That's a really big part of things. But I think the education required is so much bigger than that. But even in the most basic form of what people misunderstand is like the definition of the word itself. Mental health is what it means to be human. It is our emotional, psychological, and social well-being. And I think the sooner people start to realize that, the 
the more the stigma will, will erase, the more it will go away and people will understand, oh, we all have this thing and we're all navigating different versions of it because it could be a disorder. It could be a condition. It could be a lived experience. Your mental health is affected when you lose your job or your spouse or your child. So all of these kinds of things that can be traumatic events in life are going to cause us to struggle a little. And if you knew there was a place you could go to better understand something you'd been through to instantly find stories of people who have navigated something similar, I think that there is um, a lot more hope we could create faster. And for those who do want to get some sort of support, because not everyone needs it, not everyone with anxiety, like the majority of people who feel anxiety will never reach the level of having a diagnosable disorder. They might just need some tactics of grounding exercises or learn from other people. Like what is a supplement that you take that is helpful for that? So I think, you know, it's a really big, big world and big opportunity when you think about what mental health is and what people need in the area of mental health. Yeah. Was it, was it hard when you first like had to open up publicly about, you know, your journey or your father's journey or things like that? Like, was that difficult for you? I will say it. I want to say no. I'm like, no, it wasn't. But you do something for two years and then you're like, I'm I'm good at this and I've always done this. And you forget that. No, you didn't. And I actually just shared a, a video on LinkedIn um, talking about how I just couldn't open up about my dad for so long. Um, and I think it's like a, a couple of things. So there's the the difficulty for me and worrying about being judged and what would people think. And I just I, I laugh now thinking about how much I didn't talk about it. And now I like every podcast I'm on. And when I get to do a TV interview, I'm like, let me tell you about my mental illness. Um, and I just couldn't have imagined that world when I was a young person. Um, but a big thing I worried about was my dad, um, because I love him deeply and I believe that he feels hurt every time I do this. And I had to navigate was what I, is what I'm doing important enough that it's okay to risk hurting him. And I say hurt him because he does not believe that he, there is anything wrong with him because his perception of reality is different. And to, to um, paraphrase and quote the doctor that I interviewed in that first thesis project in 2005, um, she said, the mind of a person with schizophrenia operates in their wakeful life in the way that ours does when we're dreaming. And so when we're dreaming, we can, you know, jump off tall buildings and we can fly and we can be in two places at once. And on some levels, I think what, what a beautiful existence to like, if you're safe, which he is because he has loving family. And that's another thing another for another day. But my family in Costa Rica has nurtured and loved him into being the healthiest, best, most productive version of himself that he could ever be. And they never considered putting him anywhere, but in their home and loving and taking care of him. Um, but for my dad, you know, he is operating in that dream state in real life. And so the reality that he sees is not the reality that the rest of us have really accepted. Um, where I get kind of excited, and I don't know enough to speak enough about it, but um, as you start to look into neurodivergence and the way that neurodivergent people process the world, I look at my son all the time and think, like, how freeing would it be to be him where he's just in this world where these beautiful things attract his attention and he is happy 98% of the time. He is just singing and smiling and he is processing the world around him in a different way 
than I do. And than most of the people in his family do, and I get to watch it and I get to be there and try and encourage him to understand the things that I understand and kind of show him like, Hey, this is what we've decided is normal, but normal is not really a thing. And like, who decided anyway, that this is the way that social rules should work. And so I just, I'm really inspired by autistic adults that I follow on, um, on different social media channels, because I want to understand from their eyes, what the world looks like and, and where are the areas where there, you know, are areas of opportunity for me to like to nurture river. Um, but I think about it and in so many ways, I'm like, it, river was destined to be my son um, because I'm just, I'm, I'm paying attention because I want to create spaces and, and stories that make people more compassionate and understanding. So like my work every day, even when it's hard, I can actually point to and say, this is going to make on some level the world that he grows up in better for him, more understanding of him, more compassionate of him. And so I, when I think about it that way, I, I don't worry so much about, um, you know, my dad being mad and he still tells me he loves me. So I don't think he's that mad, um, but it's, it's complicated. And it's just one of those things in life where so often the things that are beautiful, the things that you want to do that are worth doing don't come without a cost. Um, and so I think, you know, that that's kind of where I, I land on that, but it, it's not perfect, but it's, it feels really important. You know, I think leaving the corporate world and entering into entrepreneurship um, can be tough. I'm curious, you know, how did you deal with that transition and any advice you have for someone thinking about making a similar transition? That is hard. Um, I think I, I, as you can tell, I always resist sort of giving blanket advice because I'm like, every human is so different. And I, I, how am I, how am I to know what will be good for them or bad for them? But um, what, what I have heard someone say recently about entrepreneurship is um, again, paraphrasing, I'm going to butcher this one more than any of the other ones, but was something to the effect of being an entrepreneur is about learning about yourself. And I think what, what is so true about that is that when you are working for someone else, even if you're there from the earliest days, and I was for some of the startups, um, or even if you're in a giant corporate machine where you feel like a cog in the wheel, and I was um, right before I started Stigma, um, there's always someone else who's kind of making these enormous decisions. And um, even if you're in a very high position, there's some um, seniority and, and some people who are guiding the ship, so to speak. Um, and one of the things that entrepreneurship teaches you is just the ultimate accountability, because even if you have team members at the end of the day, you or you and your co-founder or co-founders are the ones making decisions that like will make or break the thing. And you're forced to do so many things that you don't like and are bad at. So I, you know, <laughs> avoided being a doctor and going to med school. So I didn't have to do the things I was bad at. And now I make financial models. And I will say that there are areas where as an artist, I struggle more than others. Um, but what you learn about yourself is, is really what you're capable of and um, how much you care about what you're doing. And you hear that said all the time, like, do not start a business as an entrepreneur if you don't love what you do. And you hear it and you're like, okay. And then you people will point to the like, very few small, small, small percentage of people who are successful in entrepreneurship, which is why people, some people do it for the, like the money and the unicorn status and whatever. Um, and they will point to people with 
technology solutions that maybe aren't the most exciting, but then earned a lot of money. And I think that what, what is missing in those equations is that it might not be exciting to you what, what they're building, that technology solution, because it's not who you are. You think that's boring, but they didn't think it's boring because I actually don't believe you can be a successful entrepreneur and define success how you will, but um, let's say financially successful without being passionate about the problem you're solving. And the way you solve it, you might not be passionate about, but the problem is usually something you deeply care about um, because I don't think you could do it if you weren't because it just, there. it is the cliche of all cliches, but there's so many days that you want to give up and you're like, can I do this? On Sunday, I had this good self-care day, which I never do. And I was like, I'm going to try and invest in myself. And I got workouts in and I had my green smoothie and I read poetry and I was on it. I was like taking care of me today. And I had the best day and I woke up Monday and I was like, I don't know what Monday being yesterday. I don't know what we're doing. I don't know. I don't know if I'm the person for this. I don't. And I am really open with my team. And I told them everything I was feeling. They're like, call it a day now. Like you, there's like an hour left in the day, just like call it a day, go for a walk. And we have that kind of mentality. Like at Stigma, we have mental health channels and we have people who we like, we do asks for hope on our Slack. Um, we have a mandatory mental health day once a month. So once a month, you have to take a full day off of work, um, 12 days a year, and you have to share one thing you did for yourself that was nice. And it's not to prove that it was a mental health day. It's for the accountability of saying I slept in and that's it, or I had a green smoothie, or I read some poetry or whatever it is. Um, and so I think, you know, those kinds of things are helpful if you're an entrepreneur and you can weep them in, like, how will you take care of your mental health? And I'll say one more thing. I know I kind of went long on this one, but it's important. I had um, a, a West Coast investor once say to me, hey, you said you have anxiety at the top of this call and being an entrepreneur is really hard. Are you sure you can do it? And I remember thinking what he could have said, rephrased, and a very welcome question would have been, it's wonderful that you have lived experience that helps you understand the problem. How have you thought about taking care of your mental health during the stressful times of being an entrepreneur? And how will you take care of the mental health of your employees? That question I would have left because I have answers and I had plans in mind for what we would do. Um, but I think that being an entrepreneur is absolutely the hardest and the most rewarding thing I have ever done. I would do it over again, a hundred times out of a hundred. So if you're someone who's thinking about being an entrepreneur and you're scared to take the leap, but you have this thing inside you where you're like, this really needs to exist. I really need to do this. The world really needs this. And that feeling keeps coming, do it. Because what will happen is you will learn so much about yourself and you will most likely be a more marketable professional no matter what, um, even if you are one of the 90% who fails. So I mean, go into it knowing you will probably fail. Um, but if you have it in your heart to do it, and if you love the problem or care, care deeply about the problem, I think it's totally worth doing. And there's nothing I could say that could prepare you for the change because where you came from is different than where I came from professionally, who you are is different than who I am and what you're trying to build is different on both sides. So it's really just about being ready for the challenge, knowing that it's going to be incredibly difficult, um, but also being really excited because it is the, the best thing I've ever done professionally. Yeah. Um, I am curious, you know, do you want to talk about any other like what's the best way for people to to support the app or you now you do mental health pop-ups and stuff like that um you know what's what's the best way to be involved in with stigma app and kind of um help the mission 
Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, I'll keep it simple and give you one thing. Um, the app is available on Google Play and the App Store, and it's totally free. Um, if you search the Stigma app, it's the easiest way to find it. Uh, stigma was taken, so we couldn't just be Stigma. Um, but if you search the Stigma app in Google Play or the App Store and download the app for free, what I would ask you to do is go offer hope to someone. Um, it feels fantastic. We have a vision of a future where people make offering hope to a stranger in need as common a daily mental health practice as meditation or journaling. Um, it is proven that um, like research shows that if you regularly engage in altruistic behavior, it improves your mental health and your physical health. And so what I would ask of anyone who is um, interested for yourself, interested for a loved one, or just appreciated my story and is like, I want to help this person. Um, I would really appreciate people just going and downloading the app and offering hope to someone. Um, while you're there, you can see some of the stories. So maybe there's something that someone in your life who you care about is navigating and you can watch a story and share it with them because it might make them feel seen or, you you know, it's, it's a great conversation starter to have someone else to react to. We're getting into licensing um, content, sharing stories as really as like compassionate conversation starters, because it can be hard to talk about what we're going through. But if we have someone's story who we can say, when she said that, I really felt like, and talk about it sort of in a third person scenario, it is a bit of a gateway, an entry point into talking about things that otherwise could be harder to do. Um, and so I think there's so many things you can do in the app when you're there, but because it's free and because, um, you know, we, we only um, launched the app 75 days ago. So it's still really new. You know, it, it helps us to have signups. It helps us to get feedback. So sign up, offer hope, and then tell us what could be better. We know that there is a lot. It's an MVP. So, um, but we want to hear it. And the more, you know, votes we get for things that people want, um, the more we can make it everything that people need. Yeah. Well, um, I just, I just want to thank you um, and acknowledge you as I really appreciate you being so open. Um, and obviously, I uh, love the the mission of what you're trying to do and what you're trying to be. And, um, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, the main thing I think with all of these solutions is it's making people's lives better, you know, and, uh, you know, and that's, as you talked about, a, a range of different things for, you know, people in terms of, you know, um, how, how they take care of themselves. But um, hopefully this can be, um, you know, as an aspect um, of how people better themselves. So uh, all the best in your journey. And uh, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, if people want to support you, is there is there a good way to do that? Um, well, if you're watching this and you are an investor, we will be starting to fundraise soon. We are in the Chicago um, 2022, the JP Morgan cohort of Techstars. Um, so we are mid-program. So I had a busy Techstars day today and I was excited to come do this podcast. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn or email me at ariana at the stigma.app. Um, but if you have interest, if you are an early stage investor and you want to invest in this space of, of media and mental health and wellness, um, I'd love to speak to you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you.